Hello, my name is Nick Spacek, and you're listening to From and Inspired by, a podcast about soundtracks and the people who make them. Summertime starts this week, so in this episode, we can think of no one better to speak with than singer and actress Donna Lauren, best known for her work in the American International Pictures Beach Party movie franchise. Okay, ready? It only hurts when I cry. It only hurts when I cry. Go, Donna! You asked me if I ever long for him. Since we said goodbye, sure I get sad, but it's not too bad. It only hurts when I cry. You see, I hardly even think of him. American singer and actress Donna Lauren not only appeared in Beach Blanket, Bingo, Bikini Beach, and Muscle Beach Party, but the prolific 60s performer was the Dr. Pepper Girl, featured singer on Shindig, and guest starred on both Batman and the Monkees. Lauren left entertainment at the height of her fame in 1968 to start and raise a family, and while she recorded occasionally in the 80s, didn't return to music in a big way until 2009. Her first book, Pop 60s, Shindig, Dick Clark, Beach Party, and Photographs from the Donna Lauren Archive, was released last year. Additionally, she's the mother of That Dog's Anna Wolronker and Joey Wolronker, drummer for Adams for Peace. We talked about all of this and more in a career-spanning interview. Thank you so much for taking Hi. time out of your day to talk to me. I pr- really appreciate it. This is fantastic. Well, it's pretty interesting, your point of view and and your subject matter, how you link music with movies. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited to get to talk to you because it's it's not often uh, I get to talk to anyone who who's had like such a, a career. Um, usually I'm talking to people who have had like one or two scenes in you know, movies here and there. <laughs> so, uh, like, so it, it's rare I get to may talk. May I interrupt you? Oh, go right how on long, ahead. How long do you, uh, how long do you want to talk, uh, just so I have an idea, and also, um, d- uh, if we go over, d- will you edit? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, I, I only need your time for 20, 25 minutes at tops. Well, you know, um, there may be subjects that we want to get into, a little bit of depth. So I'm just saying, you know, I'm pretty flexible right now. Oh, wonderful. If you've got the time, then we'll 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 go then. That sounds like a commercial if you've got the time. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Well, they sent me your book. It was a real delight to to read it because it it goes into like all kinds of depth, which I was really impressed by. Um, just the the fact that it starts out with 
you having a, a, a business meeting with your parents at age seven. <laughs> you were you were in you were in the music industry from the very start, it seems. It yeah, kind of a vaudevillian approach, you know, like being born out of a trunk or something and then you you, you learn as you go along. Now as we all do. As we all do in our own way, right? <laughs> As we all do, did you enjoy like did you enjoy singing to the point where it it wasn't a like a difficult decision even at the age of seven? You know my earliest memory of uh singing was when I was two, and um I was uh living in this beachside community in West Los Angeles called Mar Vista, and at the time um it was um you know, kind of a combination of houses, you know, that maybe people from Pasadena, you know, kept near the beach. Um, and then as time progressed, maybe like after World War II, um, people like my adopted dad um, bought a lot and, um, you know, that was sold off from larger properties and built a tract house. And up the road, there was still an old farm. And, and, um, when I was two, my mother would park me at this uh, farm that had a cow and a horse and chickens <laughs> and ducks and rabbits and <laughs> and uh, vegetables in, in terraces. And, and there was a little clapboard house, a little white clapboard house at the top of a knoll. And um, I only knew the man. I, only, I called him Uncle Don. And he had a swing for me. And... Um, I knew his wife was inside that little house, and uh, she would leave her screen door, you know, um, available, <laughs> and I would hear music coming from that little house, and the first song I ever learned was Your Cheatin' Heart. I heard this man's twangy voice coming out of the, you know, the dark darkness of her screen door, and um, and so I'd sing along to that music when I was two, and it was extremely comforting well that seems like you know country music it seems like that's like a very nice tie-in to the fact that like your your first big appearance on the the mickey mouse club you did kind of a country (laughs) number i know well because um actually when i met james burton i think i was eight years old and there was a live radio show um, that was uh, kind of designed toward country music and western music, kind of swing band western music. And um, he was, I believe, around 17 when I was eight. And uh, he played guitar. This is just before he started working with Ricky Nelson. And um, yeah, that's where I learned <laughs> quite a few different songs. But um, well, I didn't know the gun was loaded was one of them. Which radio show was that? Was that like a town hall party or something like that? Uh, it was a very funny name. It was called Squeakin' Deacon. <laughs> <laughs> there were so many uh, radio programs at that time in the late 50s, early 60s. It's it's almost difficult to keep track of them. Uh <laughs> the, the the thing about uh like that performance as well as like so many of your other perform uh, performances and appearances was the fact that you made your own dresses. Yeah, actually, the, on the Mickey Mouse Club, my mother and I would team up because I didn't like sewing at a machine. I liked doing handwork, and so um, I liked designing. So I would draw pictures. We'd go pick out fabric. You know, she would. 
um, measure me and do the machine work, and then I would do all the hemming and and uh, I don't know. For anyone who's interested, if you see a close-up of that little dress skirt, uh, kind of a jumper skirt that I was wearing, um, there are musical notes that are on it. And, you know, I just, I like doing that kind of thing. I still do. Uh, every year I have several projects that I do by hand because it takes forever. <laughs> was that sort of like uh, a, a key to being like so many public appearances that you did that helped you stand out because you had dresses that no one else did? Oh, well, I didn't think of it that way, but you know, I loved I loved the whole concept of, you know, a look, a color, you know, how color affects you, your moods and um and your attitude and how a garment fits, what length it is, you know, does it show your waist? Does it make you feel pretty or, you know, um, and and eventually I ended up doing my makeup and hair as, as well, just as a complete, um, that was my way of expressing myself. It seems like you really did get a chance to I- express yourself, even though like you had so many different aspects, like so many different contracts and performances that you did. Like, how exactly does one get signed uh, to a seven-year contract when you were, <laughs> what, 16, 17? I, was six, I just turned 16, and I just started the 11th grade in high school when I had to literally drop out um, and join a, a private school to do work more or less, you know, on the road and send it in. I eventually graduated, but... Um, you know, there was, I had no idea um, that there was a nationwide search. So it's kind of like, I don't know, American Idol or something like that, you know, where there was actually a nationwide search for a teenager to represent um, Dr. Pepper because they were a regional beverage and they wanted to expand from coast to coast. So they thought, you know, the best way to do that was appeal to a teenage audience and, um so I was not part of the long, drawn-out process. Um, I, I was just one of two finalists that, you know, were flown to Chicago, and um, I stood <laughs> in kind of the wings of this room where uh, the first girl, who was like a perfect beauty contest winner, <laughs> was sitting on a bar stool that swiveled, and I heard the director tell her to turn her stool so her back would show to the camera and then push off and face the camera and and say a few things. And so <laughs> when she gracefully did her turn and then, you know, got off the stool, uh, it was my turn. And so <laughs> I hopped up and, um, you know, put my back to the camera and pushed off and I went a little too far. So I kind of was <laughs> a little on tilt. And, um, you know, gathered my composure, got back to center, and said a few things, you know, said, hi, I'm Donna Lauren. And literally, you know, I guess they liked the imperfection. They liked uh, someone who was, I don't know, a little less perfect. <laughs> and, um, and so they, they just went with me. Well, that seems like that got your, your name and your voice out there um 
was the 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 start of your recording career part of like like as a result of the the Dr Pepper thing or was that just separate and as part of your 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 career well i think this this feeds right into your subject matter um nick um essentially i started recording when i was nine and i never stopped um you know until i was 21 and then i still continued recording studio is a very friendly place for me very comfortable you know in that environment um but this is the interesting thing nick is that what I didn't know is that the one of the VPs of the advertising agency, Grant Advertising, who represented Dr. Pepper, was out of Chicago, and this guy, uh, Robert, oh my gosh, I have, I can't think of his last name in the moment, but um, he was uh, a screenwriter, and his overall plan to expand into the teen audience was to... Uh, have me be product placement in a movie, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and and it was all very organic. Um, so basically, I showed up on the set of Muscle Beach Party, and the musical director said to me, "You know, I heard you could sing. You know, I listened to a couple of your commercials, and uh, and walked me over to Dick Dale, and you know, before I knew it, Dick Dale and I were doing a duet of, of a Brian Wilson song." And 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 through my co-author Dominic Priori, that just recently helped me put together my my book Pop Sixties, he found out that the track from the movie that Brian Wilson produced, and you can hear his voice in the harmonies, is the same track that Challenge Records that produced it for me uh, as a separate artist. They used the same track, which. I just found out in the last maybe two or three years. <laughs> so it's pretty interesting. Out where the sun shines bright all day. Down the coast toward Malibu way. That's where we dance. That's where we swim. Where there's a her for every him. Cause that's the the thing I'm really curious about, and this seem this is, I'm always I've always been curious as to how this feels from the person performing its perspective. All of the '60s movies, uh, such as Mus- Muscle Beach Party or Beach Blanket Bingo or any of those, you see, you know, like your your singers start to sing, and like there's a usually like a guy with like an acoustic guitar, and he starts strumming, and the person starts singing, and then the backing track comes in, and it's a full band or a full band with strings, and I'm just curious as to like what that experience is like performing like. It, it almost seems like a very like wink and nod sort of thing. Yeah, those movies, seriously, I had no idea they would ever have any longevity. You know, I mean, they're very low budget. 
um, a lot of really good names, you know, some incredible talent. Who the heck knew that, you know, Stevie Wonder would be in a movie <laughs> like that? And, you know, um, it, it, all the crazy comedians that were in it, you know, Don Rickles probably, you know, is first and foremost. But um, it, 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 it had um, a certain, like, let's do this. And, of course, that was always my attitude because my commitment to my family was, you know, you show up for work, you do your work, and you go home or go to your hotel or whatever. It was never anything other than, you know, very specific for me. But, of course, you know, um, may I may I divert a tiny bit? Oh, go right on ahead. And say that, cool, <laughs> that, um, you know, I married into a family that, uh, you know, was part of 20th Century Fox. And, you know, my 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 father-in-law, um, I call Grandpa Sai, um, who owned Liberty Records, started out as a violinist in the Fox Orchestra. And if you ever want to treat yourself, watch a 1936 movie called Showboat. It's a musical oh, yes. in full Technicolor. <laughs> and um, you'll you'll hear Grandpa Sai playing violin with Alfred Newman, you know, conducting. And um, it, it's, um, it's a family history of, you know, how music underscores, you know, the story. And my first husband, you know, had... A, a very interesting and a very close relationship with another family, um, uh, with the Newmans. And, um, you know, when he was four years old, he met Randy. And, you know, and he would tell me that when they were little boys, they were out in the backyard playing cowboys and Indians, and Randy was already underscoring their play. So, you know, music is so important. It's so important that even when there were silent films, <laughs> you needed an organ, you needed, you needed music with that frequency and that vibration to carry the story. It didn't work, you know, unless you're a great poet, <laughs> you know, that, that has a, a, a melody to your, your voice, or, you know, or a certain, uh, you know, intonation that, that kind of breathes a rhythm and a melody to your words. So it's it's so inclusive. It's so emotional. And, um, you know, my son, as a matter of fact, uh, Silver Linings Playbook, this is a, such a coincidence. Um, when I moved back from Hawaii, where I lived for 15 years, and may I say I really hope and pray that the volcano um, doesn't cause too much havoc while it's erupting now on the Big Island, um, that I was in a little theater uh, probably 10 years ago or less it, called The Arrow in Santa Monica. And um, do you know it, The uh, Arrow Theater? Yeah. Oh, yes. It's very famous. And so um, Robert De Niro uh, did a personal appearance because he was in the film. And, you know, and that that's kind of the reason I went. And I'm watching the movie and saw the interview. And then at the end, I'm listening to Danny Elfman's score. And I hear drums. And I'm like, wait a minute, that sounds like Joey. Sounds like my son. <laughs> and so I texted him. And I have no idea where he was in the world at the moment. But he texted me back and he said, yeah, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
So, yeah, movies and music are quite generational in my family. Well, and what's fantastic is, like, in the... In the sixties, like you got to do, you got to do it both. Like you had Shindig, where you got to sing like all of these different like songs, both you know like n- new ones and things like that. And then you also got to act, where you were just an actress. Like you didn't, you weren't, you know, sing. It wasn't, you know, predicated on on just your your singing, which what is that sort of uh the the difference between those two things like being able to just like have one show where your job is to sing some of the you know the biggest hits in the country at the time and also getting to appear on like some of these really amazing like very popular even you know now 50 years later sort of television shows yeah isn't that crazy well (laughs) um first of all it was an honor and um and you know just a lot of fun, you know, meeting people and um, getting to know them a little bit and and then reacquainting with them later. Um, but, again, I had a certain work ethic, and, you know, I started learning songs at a very early age, and that was constant. Um, I tried my hand at piano. Uh, I got as far as learning some chords when I was 14 my first producer, Jimmy Bowen, you know, sat me down and played me some honky-tonk piano and taught me <laughs> some chords. Um, I took a, a couple acting classes when I was 10 or 11 um, and, you know, did a, a few things uh, to train a little bit. Um, but basically, um, I don't know. I guess I just treated each thing as a unique experience and that's... Um, that's how it turned out. <laughs> what was sort of the experience of of being uh, not just on Batman, but the person who gets to give Robin his first kiss? <laughs> and again and again. <laughs> now we, we have a, an exhibit at the Hollywood Museum where one of my outfits is in a glass box next to Robin's, you know, uh, costume. And so the kiss continues. (laughs) But, um, you know, they weren't really the big deal. It was just in the beginning because I think my episode was the fourth show that was being filmed. Oh, wow. So the hysteria hadn't begun yet. You know, um, I witnessed kids uh, outside the Debbie Lee Studios in Culver City where it was being filmed. Um, starting to hang out, you know, like by the by the studio entrance, and um, you know, it was a similar thing at Shindig at the ABC Studios in Hollywood, where you know you had some groupies hanging out by the parking lot. Um, but it 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 hadn't really gone full, you know, fully into gear at that point. So um, again, it was just a fun gig you know it's just something fun to show up to i got to wear clothes out of my own closet uh and the cheerleading costume came from western costumes so that's the only one i don't have but but the one that's in the glass box in hollywood is something that has just been hanging in my closet all these years <laughs> in 1968 like you retired 
for all intents and purposes for 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 quite a while from the public you know sphere at least i did <laughs> was was it just- i did it was a sequence of events um you know family uh nick i have to say i have this incredible expectation that maybe everyone has to have you know a close loving family and my life experience now i'm 71 you know <laughs> I uh, I've had um, I've had to walk on a lot of um, uh, broken glass through my life, um, and the first episode was difficult. You know, there was a, an incredible amount of pressure. Um, you know, in my young life, and um, when I decided to marry, and um, only, I think it was six weeks after I married, my mother-in-law passed away suddenly. And um, that was very emotional. I was still traveling for Dr. Pepper. And um, my dad, my adopted dad, which, you know, that information didn't come out until I was almost 50, um, that, you know, I was adopted. And um, my mother was my uh, biological mother, but um, this man who raised me and who uh, promoted me and who became my manager and traveled with me and shared the same room in every motel, hotel that we traveled in, continued doing that um, after my my marriage. And um, it became uh, an issue of conflict. Um, and I was ready to, move, you know, change my life. Um, so when my mother-in-law passed away, um, it, you know, I, uh, it kind of set me uh, into, you know, an emotional state that um, really made me make a decision. Um, the uh, um, relationship I had with my adopted father was getting very strained. Um, you know, like I said, we'd be sharing a room. Well, when I got the call that... Uh, from my husband that that she was uh, literally dying and um, and he asked me to come home I'm on the phone with uh, with my first husband and um, he's saying you know that his mother is is uh, is dying um, she had contracted uh, uh, hepatitis on a trip to Mexico and uh, and it just hit her really hard and very fast and so I hung up the phone and I told my dad, you know, I have to leave. I had never done that before, not in all the years that, you know, I've been working. And um, he said, yeah, you can leave after you finish what you're doing here. And we were on something for Dr. Pepper. And I said, no, I have to leave now. And it's the first time I defied him. I don't remember all the details, but I did get home, but I was still like, and as I arrived at the hospital, the elevator doors opened, and I won't get into all the details, but I was 10 minutes too late. Mm. So it was, um, you know, it's, it's like the earth opening up, and, you know, you're extremely vulnerable. Everything changes. And so, um, you know, the, I actually 
just tuck this in your mental Rolodex, but um, when I turned 60, I spent about five years uh, writing my autobiography because, you know, things started making sense to me and I just had to put it down on paper. It's it's just a manuscript on a shelf, but who knows, maybe one day you, you'll be able to read it. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of details. But I had to come to terms. Um, the way that my family was uh, structured is that all my income went directly to them and, you know, they doled it out according to whatever was needed. And um, I was basically... Uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, the workhorse, the bread and butter, whatever. And I complied because it, I guess it just suited me to, to do what I was doing. And um, when it when it stopped <laughs> facilitating uh, a health, you know, healthy life uh, or, you know, it, as it declined, I just had to come to terms and put the brakes on. And so, you know, I um, I realized that, you know, I, I had to earn my keep in my family. And little did I know that it wasn't just about money, but, you know, there was this lie that they were perpetrating and that I didn't find out until I was almost 50. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's pretty intense when you, you know, write a letter your, to your mother and say, oh, <laughs> so the man you know, that I've been calling my dad all these years is not my biological father, and she writes me back and she says, so what? Oof. So, you know, no wonder, excuse me, but no wonder, you know, that there's so much dysfunction in the world and, you know, um, and that, like, my daughter Anna writes, songs about all kinds of things and has been quite successful in doing that and I'm so proud of her and um, you know and my son is making music all over the world right now he's on the road with Roger Waters and you know how political Roger Waters is (laughs) especially right now yes when our president said it was not cool to take a knee you know I I saw my son taking a knee with Roger Waters somewhere in the world you know (laughs) it's it's um it's interesting to have a public life, but also a very, very rich personal journey. And um, in all these years, you know, to, uh, to from 21 and now to 71, I mean, like two years ago, not two, a year and a half ago when my book uh, had a very soft launch, uh, my co-author arranged for me to do the first concert I ever did in 50 years. <laughs> you know? I mean... <laughs> It's just outrageous. <laughs> Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. Everything that's wonderful is what I feel when we're together. Try to move down a lucky penny when your yellow rain clouds disappear, dear, and I feel so fine. Just to know that you're Your your book came out last year, and it's it's chock full of just amazing photographs. How many of these did your your adopted father take? Um, most, um, and 
whatever might be um, more a little bit more commercial, a lot of the stuff that he took of me, and let me go back to one thing which I've discovered. You know, he and I had kind of a, like I said, a very tense relationship. Um, but the one thing that he gave me was the lens of that camera. He gave me the opportunity to bypass, you know, I'm going to use a Jewish word, all the mishigas, <laughs> all the craziness um, in life, and just look into that lens and communicate to a world. Therefore, you know, the gift that I received after he passed in 99, uh, that my mother sent me a box of thousands of slides and negatives, um, you know, now it has evolved into this book. <clears throat> Many of them, because he had his own dark room, and I never knew what kind of behind-the-scenes photography he was doing wherever we traveled and wherever we were. So, you know, when I opened the box, it was all a big surprise to me. And um, I'm very, very happy for it. It kind of is a, a blessing, you know, to now, after knowing that, you know, he and I were not blood-related, but um, he did the best he could in, you know, who he was and how how he knew how to live his life. And um, he watched over me like a hawk. <laughs> and he protected me, uh, along with Dr. Pepper, you know, I, I'm an anomaly in Hollywood, you know, uh, I'm not a victim of any kind of situation, and uh, it's because I had a company that always protected me, and I had a, a you know, um, a man uh, called my dad, always there protecting me, and um, and that suited me too, by the way. Uh, I wasn't looking to go out and party and sneak out and, you know, do stuff. <laughs> where where did I leave off? I don't recall. But oh, yeah, no, it's, I'm just trying to give you trying to give you an overview. It's so it, it's such an uh, it's so amazing because it seems that uh, it's it's kind of a, a fortunate occurrence because so many books uh you know people are limited to you know just like snapshots or various publicity photos that have been seen time and time again and this book is just it's full of photos of you and you with you know luminaries of uh 60s pop culture you know every everyone from you know the the monkeys and batman but you know you with the supremes and glenn campbell and it's just it's it's just fascinating to 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 look at to just see like what what a what a life you had like a very compressed amount of time yeah and you know and it also helps that he was an animator you know he was an artist and um so he had an artist eye and um to me the picture that stands out the most is <laughs> It's kind of weird because he was always, you know, I could always feel his presence, you know, six feet away from me or, you know, he was always very, very close by. But one day he must have, like, disappeared on a rooftop because he took an aerial shot of a swimming pool. Oh, that shot, You yes. know, when I was on tour, yeah, with Dick Clark in the South. That was the Supremes' very first tour before they even broke you know, uh, baby love and where did our love go? 
and it broke by the end of the tour, but, you know, when they started out at the beginning of the summer, nobody knew them. Nobody knew their songs. And um, there's my dad, you know, up somewhere taking an aerial shot of Diana Ross sitting on top of, uh, I think it was, um, oh, gosh, what's the name of that group? Now I can't remember. The Rip Chords, I think. <laughs> the Rip Chords. <laughs> He, he, she's sitting on top of a, of a bl- blonde white guy's shoulder in the middle of the South in a swimming pool. To me, that is the pinnacle of his, you know, capturing that time, that era of, you know, music overcoming div- division. And believe me, we were turned away on that tour, with even with Dick Clark present. We were turned away from so many hotels because they didn't like mixed company. Well, it's amazing that these photos exist and that you've been able to share them. But additionally, like you your your music from that time has been getting uh shared um uh, what was it? Uh, 4 years ago, there's the the complete capital recordings that came out that has like the beach blanket bingo lp and like all of your other singles as well as some unreleased material uh what has it been like like delving deeply and getting to like rehear all of this music that you know hasn't especially in the case of like the unreleased tracks been been heard in so long well my point of view is my experience in the studio I think is returning to a lot of young artists because the experience in a studio is extremely elevating. You know, you're in a room, it's soundproofed, but there's an intense vibration. When you get a group of musicians together, you're literally elevated. You're literally, you know, your feet are lifted off the ground when you're in a room that has great, great musicians and you know I was so fortunate to have the wrecking crew I was oh you know generally except for Dr. Pepper uh, where I recorded my commercials in Chicago um, I, I generally did all my recording in Hollywood so I had the best musicians always and the best studios especially when I was in Capitol I was always recording in Studio A with the same microphone that Frank Sinatra sang out of <laughs> you know and it's collective it's like you know it's like if you've been to New York and you go to an old theater you know the walls can talk you know they hold the memory of everyone that's ever performed on that stage and and what they you know and the uh writers, the authors of, of the plays. It, so the studios hold that energy as well. Um, but I think at least, I mean, I think that people like Jack White and um, I, I, I won't say any more names, but I think mm-hmm. that more and more young people want that same experience. Um, you know, I had a kind of uh, preview with my my first husband, who um, was extremely, extremely, you know, brilliant and talented and a perfectionist. And, um, you know, she had the experience of the orchestra visiting, you know, when his dad was part of the Fox. Well, maybe not that early, um, but maybe later on when Alfred was scoring 
um, or possibly when Randy was scoring. Um, but, you know, Lenny would sit behind a board with 40 knobs and, you know, and Lee Hirschberg, his engineer, you know, would be rolling back and forth, adjusting all the sounds and miking the drums with 10 microphones and God knows, you know, <laughs> all the samples that they'd add and, uh, you know, it's, it's like uh, Good Vibrations with Brian Wilson, just experimenting with sound and getting everything absolutely perfect. But I think the school of imperfection is returning, um, you know, a la Bob Dylan. You know, it's like keep the mistakes, keep it real, but keep the energy and keep the live performance quality of, you know, the days when there were only two and four tracks in a, in a studio. And literally when they said, Take one, everybody had to play. You know, there might be a, a, a harmony overdub, but if if somebody screwed up, everybody would have to stop and take it over. That's why when I did my Beach Blanket Bingo album, <laughs> it was 14 hours of straight recording, and that's, you know, maybe a little touch-up after that, I think, one time. But the band was so tight. The background vocalists were so tight. You know, I was prepared, and we just, like, did one take, usually, per song. Bringing us up to present day, how did you become involved uh, doing the, the the theme song for the Mansfield 6667 documentary <laughs> and the, the fantastic song that kicks off the movie, The Devil Made Her Do It, I Can't Help It? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, first of all, again, full circle, um, <laughs> One day I got a call from my, let's see, my baby Katie, my youngest daughter, and um, she was doing some graphic work for a production company, and uh, she had just had her little baby, my granddaughter, Tuesday, and um, she said, Mom, you know, could you come over and watch the baby for a while? I have some work to do. And so um, she was working in her house and, and doing some graphics about Cher and her mother and told me the names of these guys that she was doing it for, and I realized, oh, my God, I had met them through this lady who whose name is Cheryl Farber who is a liner's note uh, Grammy award-winning lady um, and her husband is Steve Stanley who did my capital collection well before I moved back from Hawaii um, I was invited to do a beach party marathon at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood and Cheryl hosted it and did a uh, an interview with me and um, and Todd and David the producers of, of the Mansfield movie uh, were in line you know meeting me and uh so that was our initial meeting and then i you know it kind of just you know 
went we went our separate ways and then with my daughter Katie working for them it got a little bit closer and then I was invited to a party and and uh, Todd uh, whispered in my ear when I was going to Columbia in New York I had to spend sixty dollars on your beach blanket bingo album that was a lot of money for me at that time <laughs> <laughs> and we you know and then when I moved to Palm Springs they ended up moving to Palm Springs and so we've come very full circle and they told me that you know they'd had this fascination with uh, Jane Mansfield and the myth of her the accident and beheading and you know all this mysticism that was in her life and I told them that you know I had met her and and that I loved her movie The Girl Can't Help It I thought it was the best rock and roll movie that was ever made all the performances and you know and even she sang in the movie and you know she wasn't just a blonde bombshell in the film she was actually uh, quite good and facilitated this incredible rock and roll movie that started out with little richard singing the girl can't help it and um and so Todd and David said they were going off to England to start the documentary, and um, and they wanted me to do, uh, oh, this is kind of a funny little story. We were all sitting at the Polo Lounge waiting to go see Darlene do her comeback at the Whiskey with little Stephen. And Mary Wilson was in town, so I invited her. So we were all sitting at the polo lounge with Todd and David and Mary and a few other people. And um, Todd says to me, you know, and we want you to sing the title song. <laughs> and Mary says, what about me? <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny. But anyway, um, they went to England, and it was kind of a fascinating uh film project because they did it in collaboration with a university in Leeds. So much of the film was made there with students. And um, Todd and David were there, I think, either eight or ten months making the film. And um, when it came time to do the song, they had the song written. They had the track uh, performed ready for me in England. So... Um, my friend Maurice, uh, who has a studio in Silver Lake, uh, hooked us up with uh, Skype, and Todd and David were in England. They were Skyping, like, directing me, and um, and I was doing, you know, the, the singing over the, the ready-made track, and uh, I think it took us about eight times to, <laughs> <laughs> to get it right, build the momentum, and, you know, uh, overcome the distance, but uh, that's how it all happened, and... Todd and David are very, very, they're like family with me now. They're, they're quite amazing, and I'm so proud of them because they're off and running. Oh, gosh, I think they leave on this weekend to go to Cannes uh, to meet up with the incredible living legend Pierre Cardin. What? And I'm not saying that, he, I'm not saying his name correctly, but the fashion, you know, oh, designer, yeah. Pierre Cardin, <laughs> they're doing his documentary. Oh, wow. I know. So another uh, another iconic adventure for them, and um, I don't know if I'm going to be involved, but I've already put my three cents in and <laughs> gave them some ideas. So we'll we'll see how it all evolves. You know? Oh, that is wonderful, Donna. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. This has been fantastic. I appreciate this, Nick, so much. It's really a pleasure. <laughs> 
dance just for fun. Gives you a kiss, then he runs away. His love tomorrow ain't his love today. He's a two-time an angel with horns in his hair. A two-time an angel, a devil makes her a Many thanks to Donna Lauren for speaking with me. You can find her online on Twitter and Facebook at Donna Lauren. That's D-O-N-N-A-L-O-R-E-N. And you can buy the recently released second edition of Pop 60s, along with other merchandise, at DonnaLauren.com. You can find links to purchase all of the music you heard on the show in the show notes for this episode, which are at FromAnInspiredBy.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at FromInspiredPod. And you can subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts and Stitcher as well. Please hit up the website and click on the Give Us Money button to help pay for web hosting and long-distance fees. And remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher as well. We'll be back in two weeks, beginning our annual summer series, Your Favorite Soundtrack, with Josh Robbins of Late Bloomer talking about Spookies and their upcoming new album. Until then, thanks for listening. Heavens, where are the mothers of America? 